Um, what I want to do tonight, uh, I, I dealt with this in the first Spanish Bible study, which was on Monday. And so the only person here who's heard any of this is Sergio. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> and my wife. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, so, um, anyway, I, I thought about maybe doing something else, but time wasn't going to permit that. And so I figured nobody here has heard this anyway, so maybe it can be useful for everybody. So what I want to do then is examine how the Scripture calls us to love. Um, what are the sort of parameters or different ways in which the Bible puts forth uh, for us as an example of love as Christians? And, and here's a couple of reasons. One, in Christian culture, at least some Christian cultures, uh, especially in our own circles of like Reformed Christian culture, we are often... Uh, told or called to examine ourselves in light of Scripture and to determine whether or not there are genuine marks of faith, genuine marks of conversion in our lives. And it can be useful in some ways to do that uh, when you go to the Scriptures and to basically put your life up to the Scriptures and see if it adds up. Um, That can be useful. It can also be problematic if we do that in a way where we become too introspective But regardless of how useful it can be or not, one thing that I think often happens is when we do have these lists of, okay, here are the things that make a Christian and we need to determine whether my life adds up. One thing that I think often gets sort of maybe relegated to the back of the list is something that the Bible doesn't put at the back of the list. It's something that the Bible seems to put at the forefront of the list. Um, This is something that the Bible puts forth as supreme importance in what makes someone a disciple of Jesus Christ. We know that because this is Jesus's main test in the scriptures. So I want someone to read for me John 13, 34 and 35. John 13, 34 and 35. Okay, so you notice there, Jesus says, by this, people will know that you're my disciples. And, and, and what does he say? By what? <clears throat> right. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't other things in the Bible that are, that are really important. Jesus talks about obedience. The rest of the scripture talks about obedience. Um, I mean, there's, there's any number of things that we could put on a list to try to determine what are genuine markers of, of, uh, of true faith. There's all kinds of things we could put there. But we've got to recognize the preeminence of this, of this mark of Jesus Christ, what He's saying. For, for our Lord in this verse, the distinguishing mark for Him, it's simple and it is entirely testable for us. The validity of our discipleship, being disciples of Jesus Christ, is centered on one point here in this verse, and it is our love for the brothers. So whatever tests that we might find in the Scriptures or whatever tests we want, you know, lists of tests we want to make for ourselves, brethren, we cannot leave this off. And not only can we not leave it off the list, we can't leave it off the list even from its place of being of supreme importance in the Scriptures. And so what I want to do then is um, I want to take a look at 1 Corinthians 13. You can open up there. Now, look, this is a chapter, obviously, that we know well. It's a chapter that I don't know if any of you, but certainly is very common to be read at a wedding. Anybody had this read at their wedding? No shame if you did. <laughs> Nobody here had it read at their wedding? Oh, okay. I've heard it read at you know, most Christian weddings that I've gone to. Um, Nevertheless, uh, obviously, this is a chapter we know well. This is a chapter, um, the chapter of love in scriptures. 
And uh, the reason I want to look at this is because obviously we saw with Jesus' words that love, when it comes to the distinguishing mark of a disciple, love is of paramount importance. And in 1 Corinthians 13, what I think is really helpful here is that what 1 Corinthians 13 does is make this command very practical. It points out a number of different ways, not all of the ways, but a number of different ways that love manifests itself. It helps us to see that love is a practical thing. It's not something you just have in your heart, but this is how, this is how love manifests itself in, you know, within the body of Christ and in Christ's people. So I want to sort of shed some light here on these different manifestations of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Now I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll come back and we'll look at a few of these. So we'll start in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now, verses 4 through 7, that's where we're going to be looking at, 4 through 7. Now, this is not, of course, an exhaustive list of all of the qualities of love in the Scriptures. There's, of course, more to this that we could add. But there are, there's a lot here for us to see and for us to put in practice. Certainly, there's a lot here for us. And so, depending on how you would break up these different qualities, there's a number of ways, of course, that you could say Paul is saying love manifests itself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break it into eight sections, kind of just so that it's manageable for us. And uh, I'm going to sort of bring a number of them together for a couple of reasons. I, I think that some of these uh, can produce the other ones. So they're connected to one another. So I'm going to bring them together maybe in a couple groupings as well. So let's begin with this first one. Verse 4, Paul says, Love is patient and kind. I mean, very simply, brethren, there is a a reality that in Christian love, there is a very real sense of kindness, gentleness, meekness that is entirely biblical. A gentle spirit is, in fact, what our Lord perfectly embodied for us. It is what He perfectly magnified for us. Brethren, if there ever was someone who was patient, it was Him. Jesus is, the, is the, the perfection of all of these qualities. And even though we, as His people, fail Him day after day, what does He do? Brethren, He's patient with us. He's patient to pick us up, to help us press on forward. When His disciples, you look in the Scriptures and you find His disciples, they repeatedly fail to grasp the realities of the person who dwells amongst their midst. And we see our Lord. He's patient with them over and over and over again. Christ will never cast off His people because they are not exactly what they ought to be. He, our Lord has a desire, brethren, to see His people flourish to see His people grow, 
to see his people made more into the image of Christ. And so what is he doing? He's patiently working in us through his spirit to bring us to that completion, to take us from glory to glory. And so like him, we have got to learn to be patient, brethren. We've got to learn to be patient with the church when it is not how we so much desire it to be. We've got to learn to be patient with other Christians when they are not how we so much desire them to be. Brethren, this is what's going to bring peace in the life of the church. Patience, kindness towards one another. You know what, brethren, when we don't have patient people, when we don't have people who are patient and kind, we get people that are discontent and impatient. And these are the kind of people that are quick to snap. Impatient and unkind people. They're quick to snap. And you know what comes right along with that? When you're impatient and you snap, unkindness, unkind attitudes, unkind thoughts, unkind conclusions, unkind words. Rudeness is what comes along with that. And you know what, brethren? Even if we have in the church le legitimate disagreements, our desire ought to be the best for our brother or sister. It ought to be that way. It, it should lead us to have patience with one another, to be kind towards one another. You know what the scripture says? That it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Romans chapter 2. And so it ought to be the same way in the church, ought it not? That the kindness of one another ought to lead us to be more united with one another. That the patience and kindness of each individual Christian ought to drive us more and more to unity with one another. Brethren, this is a much better motivation than frustration and anger. Those things are not scriptural. Those things are not benefits. Those things are sins. And when we're driven by frustration and anger, brethren, we're not, being, we're not, we're not walking in Christian love. Christian love is patient. It's kind towards one another. So that's his first one. Love is patient and kind. Second grouping here, he says, love does not envy or boast. So it's not envious. It's not boastful. Now, brethren, listen, this is something that more often than it ought to can rear its ugly head in the life of a church. Envy and boasting, brethren, we have got to be determined to slaughter this sin and get it out of the camp as fast as we possibly can. This, is, this can be crippling to a church, entirely debilitating to a church. A spirit of envy, brethren, will absolutely paralyze a church in its usefulness. A church that does not and will not rejoice with one another in God's blessings is a church that will literally bite and devour one another. So Paul says to the church at Galatia. And so when we're, just think about this for a minute. When we're speaking of envy, where does this come from? Like what's the root of envy ultimately? <laughs> okay, what do we call that? Idolatry. What did someone say over here? Yeah. Okay, so these are all true. The, the thing I'm thinking of in my mind, right, there's a lot of biblical words that might go along with that. I'm thinking of very simply this idea of discontent. E envy is very simply, what did... What? You desire, but you have not. Right. You you yeah, yeah, how the Bible puts it. You know, you desire, but you have not, right? Envy, we know what that is, right? What is it when someone's envious of someone else? Jealousy. Right. You want something that you don't have. Someone else has it. You want it. You desire it, right? And we have to make a distinction here. Sergio and I were talking about this one day at work. Because the Bible uses two words, jealousy and envy. And they seem very similar, right? We think those are kind of the same and that, that might be true in some sense. But, but there is a, a jealousy that is not sin. The Bible says that God is jealous. So obviously there's a, there's a jealousy that's, that's sinless. There's a jealousy that's righteous and good to have. A man ought to be jealous for his own wife, right? So 
There's a jealousy that's biblical and not sin. And then there's a, a jealousy that would be sin. And that might be what we might consider to be envy. But nevertheless, the idea is, I, if we're talking about the root of envy, brethren, it's, it's discontentedness. It's not being content with God's lot for you, God's provision for each person. It's when we think, God, you've done something wrong here. I deserve something different or I would be better off with something else. Whatever I have here is not working out. I want the other thing over there. I want, I want that spiritual gift. I want that role. I want to be this person. I want my wife to look like that. I want my husband to be like that. Why doesn't my family look like his family? Those kinds of things. I want, I want, I want. And brethren, envy, when it arises, it keeps us from encouraging one another. Because all we're doing is wanting. That person has that and I want that. There's no encouragement. There's no, there's no rejoicing in the blessing whatever that might be, whether it's something material or, or not. There's no rejoicing in it. It's envy. Brother, when we succumb to this kind of thing, we're, we begin to just mope around. And you know what? The devil has won when this sin becomes present in the life of a church. Brethren, the heart of envy is not a heart that seeks the best for their brother or sister. And when we have this, when we have envy in our heart, or rather, rather, sorry, I'm reading this wrong. So he has this as, as one thing, envy here. And then he has here boasting. And so in the same way, brethren, this, this lack of love for one another, it results in a kind of pride. Pride in thinking that you are in some way above your brothers or sisters. This is this idea of boasting, wanting to puff yourself up over your brother or sister. Brethren, this is, I mean, what kind of evil is this thing? That, that Christians would succumb to this kind of thing. That to exalt yourself above your brother or sister and that they would feel demoralized in that situation. What kind of evil is this? Brethren, why? Why puff yourself up at the expense of your brother or sister? This is not biblical, brethren. That's not how we ought to be. Why not instead, as the scripture would have us to do, humble ourselves so that the other brother or sister can be built up. You know what, brethren? Here's another thing. Boastfulness does not need to be blatant to be problematic. Much of the boasting that goes on in the church is hidden. It's often not seen. It's kind of under the surface a little bit. Brethren, it's a desire. Think about this for a minute. It is a desire, at least in some way, to be exalted in the minds of your brothers or sisters without them knowing that you want to be exalted in their minds. Do you, do you see the deception that's in this kind of sin? Boastfulness, brethren, doesn't have to be blatant, but it can be present. So I ask you, how often has it been? Have you, have you had this at all? That you have said something or done something, and you had the hope that someone would have taken notice about what you said or what you did, and then, because of it, have a higher view of you in their mind. This is a, this is a hidden kind of boastfulness, brethren. That's what that is. If our desire is to seek the praise and the glory of man, brethren, something has gone terribly wrong in our own hearts. But this happens. This happens. Again, this hidden desire to be raised up in the minds of your brethren, but you don't want them to know that because, well, you know, then you'd be, you'd be boastful. So you don't, you don't want them to know that, but you want it to happen. Brethren, this is hidden. This is hidden boastfulness. This is sin. And if love is genuine, it will not. It will not be driven by envy towards one another. And it, it, it won't have this sense of boastfulness within it. Now, the next thing on our list here, he says, it is not arrogant or rude. Now, some translations translate this, is not arrogant and does not act improperly or unseemly. 
You can understand why they're translating it that way, right? If we understand rude, I mean, it's someone who's acting in a, you know, without using the word again, right? They're, they're acting in an improper way. They're acting in a rude way. We know what this is, right? So you can see why the translators are sometimes just saying rude. Sometimes they're translating it doesn't act improperly or, or they act unseemly. And I put these two together because I think one tends to bring about the other. So first, let's consider this, right? Arrogance. It says, love is not arrogant. Um, arrogance. Some translations translate this, puffed up. And I've been using that word already, right? So we recognize what that means. Being arrogant is very similar to what we just saw in terms of pridefulness, boasting. This is proudly thinking that you, in some way, are supreme among your brothers or sisters. It's pride in your thoughts and in your actions. That they're supreme. You got the right mind and you got the right life. When we think of arrogance, we often think of someone who thinks that they deserve something. Whether that's something material or whether that's something immaterial, right? They might think that they deserve respect or they deserve preeminence or they deserve some place of honor or they deserve applause or whatever it might be. This is someone who's arrogant. They think they deserve this kind of thing. That if other people don't give them that, somehow they've been cut short. <clears throat> now, when arrogance has its way in the life of a person, it turns its recipients into people that are rude. And you can see why this is connected here, why I've connected these two. It's not arrogant or rude. I think these two tend to go together. It turns these people into rude and harsh people. I never met an arrogant person in my life that wasn't rude and wasn't harsh. This is what happens when this thing begins to take place. They speak and they act in undignified ways because they think that they deserve something. Often, brethren, harsh or rude speech will come forth because arrogance is what is in the heart. Brethren, we've got to keep in mind Paul's words to the Ephesians. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So you see this, right? What, come, what ought to come out from the mouth, brethren, is what is good for building up one another. Our desire has got to be for the benefit and the upbuilding of our brother or sister, not the degradation of our brother, not to tear them down, not to make them feel horrible and useless in the sight of God, but to try to help build them up. I mean, you think of even Paul. He writes, Serge and I were talking about this as well uh, a couple days ago. I mean, Paul writes to a church in 1 Corinthians. You guys ever thought about this? He's writing to a church. Tell me some of the things that are going on in that church that are not good. Divisions. Divisions. Homosexuality. Adultery. What else? There's a lot. <laughs> huh? They're getting drunk. Where? At church, they're getting drunk. You guys ever been in a church like this? I've never been in a church like that. And you know what Paul says to them? He says, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. How dare you act like that? You see Paul's approach? It's like, I don't know about you. But I read 1 Corinthians and I'm like, Paul, none of these people are Christians. Wipe them off the face of the earth. And that's not how Paul deals with it. He writes to these people. I mean, they're getting prostitutes. They're getting drunk at church. They're divisive. They're, they got pride. They're, you know, they got pride in spiritual gifts. I mean, these, this is a mess of a church. And Paul says, you guys are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You can't act like that. I mean, it's just such a different way of approaching this thing. Paul is intent on taking people and trying to build them up into the image of Christ. Now, there's a place. There's a place for saying it doesn't look so good, right? There's a place for that. Paul deals with that at the end of, of 2 Corinthians. 
But brethren, our, our desire ought to be to build up one another, try to stir them onward. Christian love, brethren, it's, it's, it's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not, those are not its characteristics. So the next thing he says here, it does not insist on its own way. Now, you know what? This is quite a test in, in Scripture. This is quite a test. Paul tells us that love will manifest itself towards one another in that it does not insist on its own way. Brethren, when we, when we love our brothers and sisters, we will recognize that their opinions might have some validity to them, right? That, that we're not always right. That it doesn't have to always go our way. We don't have to insist that it go our way because our brethren might be right about something and we might be wrong about that. <clears throat> go ahead and grab it. Because <laughs> now I'm distracted. <laughs> um, you know, brethren, that's, that's how the world does things, right? What do they say? Ah, that's, that, that's not how I want it. I'm going to have nothing to do with that. Right? If it doesn't go exactly how I want it to go, I'm not having anything to do with whatever's over there. That's how the world does that. This is not how Christian love operates. Paul says in Philippians 4, 5, I had trouble with this in a Spanish Bible study because there was not a translation that I felt like adequately brought this, <laughs> brought this out. Good thing we're talking in English here. Philippians 4, 5, Let your reasonableness be known to all. Someone tell me what they think that means. Yeah, I mean, it would be, right? Conduct, but in what way? When we think of this word, like, what does this mean? Let your reasonableness be known to all men. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this is true. Yes, he just looked that up on Webster's. <laughs> yes, this is the idea. And, and this was entirely lacking in the Spanish translation. I was really bummed about it. But let your reasonable... Now this text, I just want to give you guys a quick story here. This text came to me with such force at one point because some of you may know a little bit, but my family and Aaron's family left a church um, many years ago, uh, before we ended up at the church that ended up planting this church. And when we left that church, um, there were a handful of conversations that took place. Some of them were okay, some of them were not okay. But I felt uh, some of the people there had told me <clears throat> that I was, that, would, that, that I, was uh, I don't know what words they might use, too stubborn or you know unwilling to budge or whatever. And Maybe there were some places where I, I was that way and I ought to have been that way. But undoubtedly, there were some places where I was that way and maybe I shouldn't have been that way. And, and I should have been a little more willing to work with and understand someone else's idea, someone else's opinion. And so I was reading this, I was reading Ephesians, I don't know, a few years later. And I came across this verse. Let your reasonableness be known to all men. I thought, wow, I don't think those men thought I was reasonable. I ended up texting probably, I think, four or five of them. And so I read this verse and, you know, I told them anything that I might have said to you as we left uh, the church many years ago. I want to, you know, apologize to it if you felt like I was unreasonable, unwilling to hear you out. But this text came with such force to me because the idea, brethren, is that we are individuals who are willing to work with and understand the ideas of our brothers and sisters. Brethren, it's the idea that you don't always have to be right and that you're not always right. That it doesn't always have to go your way. We're told in, in Ephesians 5.21 to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know what, brethren, in the church, there ought to be this healthy sense of submitting to one another. Recognizing that, you know what, brethren, someone else might have a more excellent way than you. Someone... People in here have more excellent ways than I do. And Christian love is going to look at your brother or sister 
and say to them, what do you think? I mean, I might be wrong. I might be seeing this not very clear. What do you think? Brother, it doesn't insist on it. This is so important in the life of a church. It does not insist on its own way. I have seen churches literally come to the end of themselves because people want to insist on their own way, on all kinds of things, things that maybe you think are important and things that are definitely not important. And people want to insist on their own way, brother. This is not how love works. Not Christian love, anyway. Christian love is a call for humility. Now, the next thing here, Paul says, it is not irritable or resentful. Now, some translations translate this idea resentful a little bit differently as well. Some say it does not keep a record of wrongs. I think, is that what yours says, the NASB? Uh, five, the end of five. Okay, so it does not take into account the wrong suffered. It's very similar. Some other translations, like I said, kind of translate it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And again, you can see why, well, I'm going to show you in a minute why I think the translations go that way. You know, we have just the words here, is not irritable or resentful. But, I, brethren, again, I think these two up there with, with envy, boastfulness, brethren, these are the kind of things that can single-handedly bring down a church all by itself. When you have people that are irritable towards one another and become resentful towards one another, are keeping a record of wrongs towards one another, brethren, this kind of thing is going to tear down H. You will not, you will not be sustained with that kind of thing in the life of a church. Christian love, brethren, is a kind of love that is going to show itself towards one another in mercy, not being irritated with one another, in mercy. And why is it, brethren, that that is so key? Mercy. Because God's been merciful to us, right? Why do we have a, why ought we have a heart of mercy towards one another? Because God has been so merciful to us. Not being irritated with one another. Brethren, the irritability of a person, this, this kind of thing is real clearly seen in the life of a church, right? It, it is being quick to frustration with someone else, with different things, different events, different people, and this, this happens Christian to Christian, right? When there are things about one another that maybe we need to be long-suffering towards one another in these things, and instead we get irritated with them. We get bothered by them. Maybe they talk in a way that we don't like. Maybe they act in a way that kind of annoys us. You know what happens, brother? In our mind, what do we do? Here we go again. This person's doing this again. And they're doing that again. This thing always frustrates me. Every time they're doing this, I'm getting sick of it. I'm getting sick of this person. And you know what, brethren? You get so annoyed with someone to the point where they don't seem to you anymore to be a benefit to the body of Christ. But they seem to you now to just be a burden that you got to hang on your back and walk around with this weight all the time. Brethren, that's not Christian love. And you know what comes right along with that? When you have people that are irritable. They get irritated by their brethren easily. You know what happens? That's this idea right here, resentful. You become resentful of one another. You start taking into account wrong suffered. Hold on a second. This is like the 10th time he's done this to me. You start making account of mistakes and sins. You become resentful of people, resentful of your brethren in the church. And then you know what happens? You begin to think that everything about that person is bad. There's nothing good about them. Everything they do, everything they say, it's all bad. Brethren, this is, this is a, a kind of sin, brethren. Again, it will tear apart the people of God. It will tear down a church. We have got to kill this if it is in the life of the church. There has got to be in a recognition of the gospel Christian to Christian, 
a recognition of mercy towards one another. Brethren, we know this. Christ does not become quickly irritated towards His people. He doesn't resent them. You know what else He doesn't do? He doesn't count their sins against them. We've got to kill this, brethren, in light of the gospel. This ought to have no place in the life of the church. Irritable and resentful. Now, the next thing he says is this. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now this can seem, I feel like anyway, I don't know about you all, but I felt like this was at first somewhat confusing when I read this. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Well, yeah, of course not. I mean, do we even really got to talk about this? Like Christians, yeah, they obviously should not rejoice in sin, especially if it's in another person, right? It seems really obvious on the surface that that's the case. But you know what, brethren? I have seen this happen. I've seen this happen where people do rejoice in wrongdoing. Not in a way you might think. But you know what happens? Here's a, here's a situation in a church. Somebody sins over here. And this guy, because this guy sinned, this guy instead goes over here, and this guy comes down. So now this guy has a sense of joy about what took place. This is weird, wicked rejoicing in wrongdoing. Where the sin of one person actually brings another person higher in the view of others. And they end up rejoicing in the wrongdoing. Brethren, let me ask you. I recognize this question may come with some pointy end on it. But again, I've seen this happen. But then if you ever wished your brother or sister to fail at something so that you could be seen in some greater light in the eyes of your brethren. How ungodly this kind of thing is. But I've seen it happen, brethren. I've seen it happen in the life of a church. Has someone around you ever sinned in some particular way? And instead of you being ready to go and help them and carry their burden, you were just pretty happy that it just wasn't you instead. It's over them over there. It wasn't me. Again, this is this hidden way of rejoicing and wrongdoing. What is this, brethren, that this, is, this can happen in the life of a church? This is so far from Christian love. So far from seeking the edification and building up of a church. It is purely selfish ambition. That's all that is. Purely selfish ambition in thought and action does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Now, these last four, I've separated them into two different ideas here. So the first grouping is, I want to I put these two together. Love believes all things and hopes all things. And again, this is just incredibly necessary in our interactions with one another in the life of the church. Brethren, do you, do you believe, do you think, do you believe that your brothers and sisters have your best in mind? You've got to think that way, brethren. You've got to think that way. Or instead, do you often find yourself attributing sin and bad motives toward your brethren? Bad motives, bad actions. Again, the love that we ought to have towards one another is a love that, that looks at each other with a heart of compassion and love and refuses to believe that my brother or sister has malice in their heart towards me. We've got to believe, brethren. We've got to believe and hope all things for the good of our brethren. Listen to this. Spurgeon said this. It would be better to be deceived a hundred times than to live a life of suspicion. And this is true, brethren. To be, to be walking around in the life of the church and always suspecting someone sinning against me. 
Someone just thought evil about me. Someone's got a bad motive in how they're acting towards me. They told me this, and they for sure did it because of that reason over there. To always have this thing, brethren, that is not a way to live the Christian life. To constantly be suspecting that others are doing things to you. To be living in suspicion, brethren. And you know what? Even if someone really did offend you, you know what the scripture says? Yes. I want to go to, someone go to Proverbs 19, 11. <laughs> That's biblical verse 2. Proverbs 19, 11. Someone read that. Okay, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Now, where does this come out of the New Testament? Okay, certainly it's related, but I'm seeking, I'm talking about even more specifically, almost the exact words. Love covers a multitude of offenses or sins, depending on the, you know, how you're going to translate the word, right? <laughs> well, so yeah, there would be certainly different allusions to this verse all throughout the scriptures, but in P, in First Peter, he actually actually almost quotes this verbatim and he says Lo keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of offenses so he's pulling this idea out to overlook an offense brethren listen again we don't want to live a life of suspicion we don't want to live a life in the christian church thinking that everybody has bad motives towards me that everybody's being malicious towards me. That is not a way to live in the church. You're not going to function like that. But even if, let's say they did, let's say someone did have a bad motive toward you. Let's say someone did really offend you. You know what, brethren? It's your glory to overlook an offense. And let me tell you this, brethren. Again, I'm not, you know, all of these are extremely important. But I guess when I say some of these can tear down a church, it's because I've seen these things tear down churches. And I've heard of different brethren that have had, that have planted churches, and their churches have died because of some of this stuff. I mean, when you have a church full of people that are, and I don't mean to use like trite words here, but I hope you understand what I'm saying, full of people that are thin-skinned. They, 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 they're always thinking, oh, that person, they didn't, you know, they didn't say hi to me in that way. And they're mean. Or, you know, they did this to me. They did that. When we have a church that's full of people who are thin-skinned and they can't overlook offenses. They can't, they can't just continue on and kind of say, brother, it's all good. No problem, right? We're, we're, we're moving on. We're seeking the Lord. We're trying to run, run well after the Lord. When we have a church that can't do that, brother, it's going to die. We got to be a people that, that can function in this way. We've got to be a people. I mean, you know what the scriptures say, right? If someone sins against you, what ought you to do? This is true, but I guess I'm, okay, I'm, I'm just coming off to the side here for a minute, okay? Huh? Go to them, right? Okay, so if they sin against you, you go to them, right? Now, here's my point though, right? It is possible in the life of the church for someone to have done, committed some offense towards you and you to go, I'm going to let it go. I'm not even going to bring it up to them. They didn't mean it. They don't have that heart. This is where this is what I'm talking about, right? Having, rec believing all things, hoping all things. I come in. Nick Perry says something. Eh, I didn't really like that. Uh, he didn't mean that. I'm going to let it go, right? Or you talk to someone. They say something to you, or they they give you some look, and you think, uh, I don't know. Eh, they, they 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 love me. That was probably, you know, they, it was either accidental or they didn't mean it. I'm overlooking it, right? We're overlooking offenses all the time in the life of the church. This is how we maintain unity and love towards one another. You know what happens, brethren, when you have a people that they just, they're just counting up offenses. Oh, they're doing this and they're doing this. And now I'm going to go to them with a huge list of 20 things they did to me wrong. Brethren, that is not going to create unity and love in the, in the life of the church. We've got to be a people, brethren, that, that one, 
think the best of one another so that we're not thinking that everybody's offending me, right? We got to have that first. I'm thinking the best of all my brethren in the church, that their motives towards me, there's no malice there. There's no anger there. There's no sin there. So I'm already doing that, which means most of the things that are offenses are getting dropped by the wayside. But then even when there are some things that might really be left behind, we've got to do this. Overlook offenses, brethren. Why? Because we're believing the best about our brethren. Not that they got some malicious evil intent in their heart. Right? No one here is perfect. We are going to offend one another. You are all going to sin against one another. I'm going to sin against you at some point. And may God help us to have forgiveness in our heart towards one another. Right? We don't want to do that. But brethren, if we're counting those things up, this, it's not going to work, brethren. It's not going to work. Love has got to believe all things and hope all things. We've got to believe the best about our brothers and sisters. Not thinking that malice is in their hearts. Now, these last two, closely related to the others in that, that grouping of four there, bears all things and endures all things. Now, this concept of love bears all things is somewhat humorous. <laughs> At least I think it is. Because it makes clear the fact that there are going to be things in one another that we're going to have to put up with. You understand this? Like, that, that's what that means. You know what it means when you're bearing something? It means that there's something about another person that you don't particularly enjoy, and you're going to bear it. This is somewhat humorous to me. I just I think it's interesting that Paul says this. You know why, brethren? Because you're not you're not going to love everything about every other person. You're not going to. There will be things that you don't love. But we are told in the scriptures that to put up with it, that to bear with them is an act of love. That's what that is. Not everybody's like you. Not everybody's like me. Not everybody talks like you and acts like you and thinks like you and whatever they do, eats the same food you do, whatever, right? Love bears with one another. It puts up with things about others that you don't particularly like. And you know what, brethren? This all ends here with a call to endurance. Endures all things. You remember Paul's words in 2 Timothy 2.10. He says, I endure all things for the sake of... Of the elect. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is can we say the same? That we endure all things for the sake of Christ's bride. It is a call for us, brethren, to make a commitment to one another, to make a promise to one another that we are there for the other, that we're not going to abandon them. It's a commitment that says, Brother or sister, I'm here with you. I'm not going anywhere. You know what, brethren? The answer to the age-old question is, you know, when, when Cain, God comes to Cain and he asks him, where's your brother Abel? Right? And what does Cain reply? Am I my brother's keeper? You know what the answer to that question is? Yeah. Yeah, you are. You know, where is he? That. And oftentimes in the church, brethren, we kind of we think, eh, I'm not my brother's kid. He's over there doing his thing, whatever. Let him do whatever he does. Or let her do whatever she does. And we don't remember that we are our brother's keeper. That you have made a com All of you who are members of this church have made a commitment to one another. It's not, this isn't Sam's Club. When you just decide, I don't like Sam's Club anymore. Nah, I'm not going to be a part of Sam's Club anymore. Brethren, you made a commitment to one another to be your brother's keeper, to endure, to put up with one another in love, to bear with one another, to endure with one another, to love one another and to care for your brothers and sisters, brethren, through the, through the good things and through the bad things. And brethren, you know what? In this church, we've been through both. We've been through both. We've been through some good things, and we've been through some difficult things, brethren. 
And this is a call for us to do that. A, a commitment of love towards one another. But then this is the call in the scriptures of Christian love. Again, this is not exhaustive. But this, this is what love looks like in the life of a church. It's patient, kind, doesn't envy, doesn't envy one another. It's not boastful in its heart. We're not trying to lift ourselves up above one another. It's not arrogant, it's not rude, not harsh towards one another. Doesn't insist on its own way, recognizes. I may not be right here. I'm not always right. My brethren got possibly some more excellent ways than I do in different things. It's not irritable, not resentful, not counting up wrongs against one another. Doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Again, brethren, don't just wipe that off the table as though that has no, no relevance. Clearly, Paul's putting it here, meaning people did that. They were rejoicing in wrongdoing. It bears all things. It believes all things. Hopes all things and endures all things. Brethren, this is how Christ loved. This is how we have to love. Love one another as I have loved you, Christ says. So may God help us, brethren, to do this in the life of the church. We've got to demonstrate these things. So, any thoughts or questions? I don't know what our time is here. Give me a good time. That's not a good time. That's a great time. Well, you said one thing. Um, just in light of some of the things you've heard from other pastors, and some of those are similar things I've heard. And just, I mean, I think about what Paul says at the end of that when he says, uh, the greatest of these is love. You, mm -hmm. you think of faith and hope. I mean, that's all throughout the Bible. But he says, the greatest of these is love. And I just think about how some of those churches, the reason that they failed was that they didn't have love, ultimately. And I just think about all those warnings in Scripture. I mean, some, cause you, I mean you, you brought it up. And, you know, we think when a church folds, we think, oh, it's just a business closing up, you know? Like they ran out of money, they ran out of people, they ran out of this or that. Almost kind of like, you know, to use the Sam's Club thing. Not enough memberships, not enough people you know, signed up, not enough people paid money, whatever. But that's not what happened. Love was extinguished and God took his spirit out of that place. And the place that was rotting, God let crumble. And that's just such a sobering reality. Constantly think of, not to scare me, but or, or even to scare us. Just to think of that reality, though, of... The church really is like a living thing. It's a living organism. And love is kind of like its lifeblood. And without love, it's like sucking all the life out of something. And expecting it to just be able to walk and talk and do everything. And eventually it just won't. So just hopefully that presses us on to consider we're not just some membership club. We're a living embodiment of Jesus Christ on earth. And without love, we don't have him. Some of you may remember, I'm just, you know, I, I want to give you one of the examples that I'm, that I'm, when I say, like, I know that this stuff has happened. Um, and I think uh, it really affected you when, when Mike Schilling was here and he shared some of it, but um, he had shared when he was here something about how one of the churches that they had planted that was here in Las Vegas, it had basically fallen apart. And um, do you remember this? Oh, I think it was a big part of why you uh, wanted to do like the women's fellowship things, right? Oh yeah, that was a big family. Right, yeah. You remember what he said? Yeah. Why was it? That like there was there was this church in that I don't remember the whole thing, but he said that it boiled up, boiled up, and boiled up. And it just yeah. And then they would be 
Yeah. So what happened there was within the, within the life of the church, with the women that were in the church, they began to be cold towards one another, began to be irritated by one another in different things about each other, began to be resentful towards one another, began to keep records of wrongs. And that sin got embedded in the life of these women in the church. Now, I'm just, in his case, it just happened to be the women. I'm not saying it was, you know, you know be on guard. I'm just saying, you know, that, that's what happened there, right? So you had a situation where these kinds of sins got into the church and it killed it. It killed it. This is real. When we don't, when, you know, what Aaron's saying, the church is, is, a, is a living organism. And you know what happens if you get like some, some disease in your arm and it's, you know, it's some flesh-eating disease? What happens if you don't treat it? It spreads. And you're going to die, right? That's how the church is. You get sin like that in the midst of the church, it's, and, and it's, it's like some flesh-eating disease. It's, it's something like that where it's going to kill it if you don't deal with it. So these kinds of things, it's so important. This is not just, oh, this is the love chapter. How sweet. You know, we want to love. Yay, 1 Corinthians 13. This is, we have got to, we have got to implement this in our lives. This is how we got to love one another, brethren. We got to work. This is not easy. Is it easy to put up with the things in one another that you don't particularly like? That's not that easy. That's kind of hard to do. Sometimes it's real hard to do. But we got to do it towards one another. Is it easy to overlook offenses? Maybe sometimes, but sometimes not. So, we, brethren, this is, this is something that takes work. And it's something that we ought to give ourselves to, to love one another in these ways. Yeah, it's well, it's somewhat hard to give an answer to that because it requires us to put de different degrees on sin, which I think in some ways we we don't want to do because in some sense all sin is sin. Any sin that someone commits damns them before God. And yet, in the Scripture, there are degrees of sin. There are things that are more grievous than others. Um, and so, uh, I think when we're just trying to determine here, okay, if someone... Uh, it is... Now, I, I, I can't give an answer on this question necessarily because I don't know what it says in a language. I do know that a lot of translations, when they're using this overlook thing, they use the word offense. They don't use the word sin. Now, I don't know. Maybe one of you can look it up while I'm talking and we can actually determine the answer to that. Whether or not the word there is sin or it is something different as offense. But like I said, a lot of the translations do use the word offense. Now, even if it is sin used in the word I think what the translators are trying to get us to see is that there's, there's got to be this distinction in our mind between someone has committed a sin that is uh, going to have effects and, and towards God, towards the people of God. Like there's, This is a sin that is going to have effects here. This isn't something that's just kind of like, uh, you know, they did something and it was kind of in private and I can just overlook it and it was towards me. You know, it's not like, you know, they did something else, right? So they, at, least, at minimum, even the translators are recognizing there is a distinction in those ideas. So what I would say is, at least in my own self, if, if ever something happens towards me, I want to overlook it unless I think the person themselves is stuck in some kind of sin. Right? If someone mistreats me in some way, but I know... I know that brother's heart. I know he loves the Lord. He did that, and it was wrong. It was sin. But 
I know he doesn't desire that kind of thing. I know that that's not what he wants, right? I want to overlook that. Uh, this happened a lot with one of my very good friends. It would happen almost weekly uh, where we would get in conversations and he would say different things that were, sometimes they were just slightly offensive. Sometimes they were really offensive. And it, it was kind of sad because it got to the point where I knew he's going to call me tomorrow and he's going to apologize. Right? I knew he thought that was not right. I got to fix that. So even when it happened, immediately it was like, I'm overlooking it. I'm going to overlook it because I know he's, that's not intentional, right? And he, he's, he was, you know, working through that, trying to get victory in that. So anyway, I'm saying when oftentimes I think we need to be willing to overlook unless it seems like, okay, this brother's like really in some kind of sin here and it's got, it's, and he doesn't think it's sin. You know, that those texts there, Go to your brother and confront him. Then it says, if he, if, if, uh, if he listens to you, you've won him. This is a situation where you're confronting someone who doesn't really know that what they're doing is sin. And you're having to confront them so that they come to see, yes, this is sin. You've got to repent of this, right? Did you, did you look at it and see? Uh, well, you could look at uh, Proverbs... 1911 and see what the word is there so yeah we've got to be discerning to try to determine when this might need to be brought out when it doesn't i don't think i mean the bible doesn't give us you know, here's the list of things that you do go and here's the list of things you don't uh we've got to be discerning and prayerful and trying to discern from the lord what would you have us do I mean, I've had times where I've confronted people on things that I could have looked over, but I felt like, I don't think I should look this over. I think they need to know this was problematic. And uh, other times where I looked things over and maybe I shouldn't have, uh, because in the end I came to realize, well, you know, that wasn't good. So, I'm not, yeah, it's not easy, but you know, we need to be prayerful, discerning that. A lot of prayer, I mean, and, and I talked about this some time back about, um, speaking the truth to one another. And, and I really talked about that in terms of confronting one another about sin. And if we're going to do that, we need to, we really got to be spending some time in prayer before we do that. And if I'm going to go to someone and I'm going to correct them and what they're doing is sinful, number one, my heart has to be in the right place. I cannot be wanting to go to them simply to make a point or simply to make them feel like, ah, oh, you've acted like a fool. That, my heart can't be in that place. My heart has to be in the place where I really want good for them. And whatever it takes to get that good to come out of this situation, I'm willing to do, right? And so my heart's got to be right in that. I want, I want to pray for them that God would make their heart able to receive it. I mean, just all, that thing has got to be covered in prayer. And I think that's a helpful time for us to determine whether or not it even is something that I need to bring up. I mean, I might, someone, I might, there might be an offense that takes place. And I think, okay, I might need to go to them and confront them. And then I pray about it for a week or so. And then I realize, I don't think I need to go to them. Like they've already, you know, some conversations already taken place. Maybe things have already come out, you know, and it's just, it's unfolded in a way where maybe it doesn't require it. So I'm just saying, just as we cover it in prayer and we really seek the Lord's guidance, not every situation we have an answer for, but I think he'll, he'll lead us in it if we're desirous of that. So, transgression. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So even there, right? The word. I mean, it's it in in uh, Proverbs. I mean, a more accurate translation would be, "It is His glory to overlook a transgression." Um, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, there might be a disservice there in some sense using the word offense because it makes it seem like it's not a sin. I was just offended, <laughs> but it probably it was a sin. Um, and it's just it's just the reality in the scripture that not every sin, you know, requires church church discipline. <laughs> Some sins do. Some sins require the beginning of the process, and and repentance comes. Some sins require, like First Corinthians five, get them out. 
I mean, there's, there's no process. There's no like, oh, go through these steps. It's get him out. He's going to leaven the lump. Get him out. Quick. So there's just, it's discerning. Okay, what's the situation? How ought we to act? Um, and we have sort of like, this is the manual, of course, but, it, but it's, not, it's not like a car manual. You know, it doesn't say, okay, undo this screw and then this one and then pull this. It's, you know, you're going to have to, you're going to have to be prayerful and discern the will of the Lord in it. So.